Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, a new culture podcast from the Financial Times. We're into film, not finance, music, not markets, and style, not stocks. My name's John Sonia. And I'm Griselda Mario-Brown. We're both culture editors here at the FT. On this episode, we're here from the Israeli couple behind Honey & Co, an award-winning restaurant that serves up home cooking from the Middle East and central London. I love it. Think char-grilled meats and cinnamon puddings. Okay, before that, we're looking back on 2016. It will probably go down, or it will go down, as the year of post-truth politics, populist unrising, and loads of sad, sad celebrity deaths. But it was also the year of Hamilton, Beyonce, and Picasso. We're joined in the studio today by a writer and historian and associate editor at the FT, Simon Sharma. Thank you for joining Hello, us, Simon. pleasure. John, we're going to start with you. You were ranting about this earlier to me. What is your cultural low point of yeah, the year? We're going to start on a bum note. Uh, sorry, we'll get to more fun stuff later. And it's not, it's not like I, it's the most important cultural low light of the year, but it was just something that really left like a horrible taste in my mouth. The Italian journalist Claudio Gatti revealed the identity of novelist Elena Ferrante. Um, as you will probably know, she's written under a pseudonym since 1992. Mm. And she's written these wonderful novels, which um, I'm sure we've probably all read. Yeah. I've only read one yeah. of them, but you love them, don't you? Yeah, I've read all of them and love them. The mm. Neapolitan Quartet. A wonderful depiction of kind of female friendship at its best and worst, I think. It was a really baiting article. It was a really snide article writing about... Um, basically, he, he uncovered her through her financial records and he wrote all about, you know, the 11-bedroom mansions she had bought in Rome and the, you know, houses in Tuscany. And it just had a really... left a really horrible flavour in my mouth. Yeah, and also, kind of, the dripping self-congratulation of that whole yeah. exercise was horrible, I thought, really. And but- there's something about kind of... There are so few avenues left you know, in our digital world of any kind of artistic mystery. It was just such a shame for for Mm. that to kind of... It was like you can't be successful and have a little bit of mystery left. Mm. Exposure and transparency are everything. Exactly. Enslavement to the public gaze. No, it's sickening, really. Normally kind of the literary world is... Maybe it doesn't come under scrutiny enough because it's not that kind of topic, but it was a shame that that happened to kind of such a prominent literary figure who explicitly said she wanted to keep her identity unco- uh, undercover. Mm. Yeah. She said she would stop writing her novels if her identity was uncovered, so fingers crossed she doesn't. Maybe writers in revenge will go back to the 19th century practice of single name. You know, why should pop stars have all the fun like Prince? So maybe they'll be called <laughs> Houndsditch or... Marmaduke or something, <laughs> and just, just one name. That's probably still wouldn't you know, prevent sleuthing, actually. But. Yeah, so that was, yeah, that was my, 
my kind of low point. That of is the your year. low point of the year. Yeah, that was in October. So for something a bit more uplifting, Simon, you've got oh. many highlights of the year. We tried to whittle you down to yeah, one, but we couldn't. Too many. No, well, I've got two big ones. The first one is is a bit more trad, I suppose, in a way. It was a great sculpture exhibition of Picasso's at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I live in New York, and it qualifies because it, it didn't end until February. And So it um, started in 2015. Uh, yes, it did, but, it yeah, did. Yeah. But it was immediately seen as something extraordinary. I think because really, usually the sculptures just occur as an add-on. And so they're always a kind of little bit of sort of grab bag of things in each phase, a little cubist one here, there. But the case made for this extraordinary exhibition made me think of Picasso's own description of wanting to draw in space. He said that around the time he was doing um, his extraordinary cubist exercise. And I guess it did depend a bit whether you whether cubism leaves you cold or, or heats you up. I, I'm, I'm someone who gets quite emotionally overwhelmed by cubism. I love it on a, weirdly, may say something about me, on a kind of the <laughs> level of the play with senses, but it only works even as a painting if you think about the kind of dance of the planes and the faceting. And um, when you actually see him do this, um, it's quite easy to think that you can sort of look back on the origins of sculpture which played with bolts and planes and rods and depth which does draw in space but wow when you saw him do it sometimes on a very large scale completely overwhelming it was sort of um, transporting actually and then being Picasso within an, you know, the next Roman were these very classicising sculptures of Marie-Thérèse Voltaire and others. So you felt, you know, you felt the extraordinary kind of encyclopedism, his kind of amazing omnivorousness. And is it right that um, he, well, that I've read that he was a bit more experimental with his sculptures in a sense because of his being sort of untaught in terms of sculpture? Yes, exactly. His dad was a painter and he, all of his training was like that and he was a... He became famous at nine for being a child prodigy. <laughs> so, so, but that was all about painting. And typically in the 1950s, I'm not someone who wants to make a huge case for the post-war Picasso. I think there really was a decline. It's an old-fashioned view. Um, but there's a lot of children and goats going on, really, which, <laughs> I, which everybody loved. There was a lot of, ah, you know. Uh, there was also an extraordinary thing in that last room of the, of the 40s and 50s, a tiny of, of engraved shells and things like that. You don't think of them as kind of a miniaturist but, but he sort of did everything he d he did everything so i you know at a time when everything is super specialized and also when people are devolving their arts to factories worth of people who work on the concept it was fantastic to see someone just grabbing every physical material he could that was a huge high point for me and your your other high point was... Oh, my other point was, couldn't have been more different. It was Hamilton, which which will hit London soon, next year. I, I think, think it's right? next November, yeah. I did love it for all the predictable reasons. It was extraordinary to sort of take a moment in history and do a hip-hop opera, in effect, and make these white founding fathers really very, very non-white and sound very non-white, and yet really essentially get the core of the revolution more or less right. But what I really loved about it... It took me back, this will surprise you both, to uh, Herodotus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because history, we know what we know about him, his history was that it was performed out loud with music 
at the Panhellenic Festival at Delphi. And the, it was only really with, you know, the monks and with Bede and the likes of that, that history is meant to be written silently in a scriptorium on the page. And I'm slightly self-serving because everyone complains about, oh, what ham, Sharma is quite right. Um, <laughs> kosher ham. No. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> so... And so, of course, I love the sense of it being history is a kind of exuberant diction and actually just wrapping the audience into. And I then I thought about, you know, the way the history plays. We've, we've had a Shakespeare year, of course. Yeah. The yeah. way the early history plays, the Henry VI, um, were first performed on the assumption that that rowdy audience first in Shoreditch and then in in this neck of the woods At the responded. Globe, yeah. yeah, and that, what is that if not, you know, heroes and villains and rowdy groundlings and so on. So Hamilton seemed to me to belong to a deeply pre-professional kind. It's a kind of, of departure from history of the libraries and yes, back to storytelling. call and response, you know, yeah. and a lot of the 18th century more than we think. Yeah, and the, mu- the musical won the Pulitzer Prize for drama and it was nominated for a record breaking 16 Tony Awards and it was amazing that this came out at a time when kind of immigrant inclusiveness is yeah. such a yeah. kind of polarising of 2016 it is, it is, so it's such it? the timing was almost too good to be true for yeah. a play so it also seems to me in retrospect John you know that it's sort of a it throws back this ridiculous charge of elitism at anyone you know there's not there's nothing remotely elite about this particular musical well, sure, and there are kind of musical nods to, like, Biggie, to Destiny's Child, to Britpop. You know, there are so many. Yeah. It's really yeah. quite wonderful how it brings yeah. in so many different things. One of the things that, you know, that strikes me about 2016, but about our life generally, is that as we become more cyber-addicted, you know, as we stick to whatever our screen of choice is, from a smartphone to uh, a tablet to an iPad, there is this incredibly immediate hunger for face-to-face theatrical experiences. Why otherwise, you know, all these book mm, festivals sure. are packed out. The theatres have never done such There's something about right? sharing an experience there that's is just something so basic. About the room. Yeah. There is something about the room, you know, which I which I think is a wonderful thing. So We had Ivo Van Hover in the studio a few weeks ago and he was kind of talking about that visceral experience. Yeah, that and the kind of the so liveness, the sharedness. Yeah, and you just can't recreate that no, at home I mean, with your laptop. Tr- it's true of rock and roll. It's true of pop music too, I think, actually. You know, it's great also concerts pretty... you really do remember. I, you know, mine is kind of an archaeology of rock and roll, <laughs> necessarily. But I do remember, I do remember. Well, on the topic of great concerts, we can come to Griselda's cultural highlight of the year, which, uh, yeah, reveal what it is. My cultural highlight is slightly more pop culture, Simon, than yours. It is Beyonce. (laughs) I think Beyonce has been a a massive figure this year. There was Formation, which was a surprise single she released back in February. The next day she played the Super Bowl. This was a kind of extraordinary performance. She had... Um, her dances with these kind of Black Panther berets on the Super Bowl. I saw that. It was yeah, the only bit of the yeah. Super Bowl I did see. Well, it's the only good bit of the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who cares about that? Was, <laughs> yeah. no. I do quite like American football, but, 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 but she, Beyonce but I stole the show. Yeah, I mean, she, <laughs> she had these dances and these these kind of amazing costumes. They were doing a sort of Black Power salute. The, the lyrics of Formation are quite um, explicit, quite politicised. She then 
released the album that Formation was part of, Lemonade, in April. Again, another surprise release, which is something Beyonce does. She's kind of yeah. just drops these drops these mm. things and then stands back and everyone kind but of... Lemonade was very dark about things other than politics too. Lemonade was very dark. Yeah. It was kind of um, this vision of a woman scorned. It was about yeah. her relationship with Jay-Z. But what she was doing was quite interesting, I think, because there had been all these rumours swirling around about about her marriage and Solange. Yeah, the lift, the lift. The lift with Solange attacking oh. uh, Jay-Z, her sister. That could have been a cultural low point of the year as well, actually. That, that could have been a cultural <laughs> low point. But what, so what she did was kind of release this album and she said, well, this is my version of events. I'm kind of taking back control of the story, mm. which I thought was quite interesting. Also, the album... It's a visual album, which means it's sort of a, it's a long music video, but it's so beautifully made. It's almost mm. like a kind of very high production film. Um, and it has all these images that kind of hark back to Black Lives Matter protests, to Katrina, mm. um, to Ferguson, uh, these kind of very politicised, radical things, which I think we were seeing Beyonce in quite a, mm. a kind of a different role than she had been before. Because I was also uh, struck by, I, I did see it, struck by how astonishingly beautiful the video element of it was and you know do you think that all other people will try well the other the other thing which is both high and low point but only low in the terms of deep melancholy was the last thing that Bowie did you know and that I mean, particular a... song was kind of three minute Greek tragedy really the, yeah. the, the wardrobe and it was just terrible to see and magnificent beautiful made you cry it's your a eyes real out. it was, it was a, a real great farewell. little work of art yeah but it's a great little film work of art I yeah. thought without I mean I think both Bowie and Beyonce are kind of real stage managers in that yeah. sense he kind of stage managed his death and yeah. Beyonce sort of took all these rumours that as, as I say were swirling around and kind of said okay h- here they are if you want to talk mm. about this I'm going to I'm going to kind of give you the narrative. I'm not really into her music, I'm sorry to say. I prefer Rihanna's yeah, album, by the way. But, um, yeah, she's an amazing performer, but I'm just not sure how... She she is such a brand, and I just feel like with her, everything is really calculated, and she's not kind of... Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't dispute that. I think... Um, I'm more cynical than you. She... Well, I'm, I, I am cynical about Beyonce, but I, I also think she's very good, but... Um, she released this on Tidal, which is Jay-Z's streaming service, before it was available on iTunes or um, Amazon Music. So there was a definite kind of commercial drive there. It was kind of, once it was out, it was heavily publicised and you had to subscribe to Tidal in order to listen to it. Yeah, doing hubby a favour. Well, she co-owns it, so doing herself a favour as well. But at the same time, I think she is actually quite serious about feminism and about talking about the kind of black female experience about talking about sexuality intersectionality even she is actually resting all of these things back i think she's you know she started off i remember her as a teenager singing you know put a ring on it and all of this kind of stuff and doing destiny's child and she's come quite a long way since then i think (laughs) i just never saw anything wrong with put a ring on it (laughs) put a ring on it it. is not a feminist sentiment no probably not (laughs) so simon to get slightly more serious now this has Mm. been in all of these kind of like summing up 2016 kind of articles they all open with how bad a year this has been on many different levels and your low point we are going big picture here yes well my low point really is when inevitably something to do with the president-elect of the united states 
But I, I, I would just preface that by saying that I'm probably a bad person to ask about low points because I think actually when I think I'm going to be bitterly disappointed, <laughs> you know, in a film or an art show or something, I just don't, you know, go and see it. When I was a long time ago, um, art critic in New Yorker, both editors, both both Tina and David Remnant, used to complain that I was much too nice. <laughs> and, and the reason was because they, they didn't assign me, really. I that, They gave me self-assignment rights. And, and I always, it, there was other things, you know, I wasn't going to go, near Jeff Koons sorry Jeff um, so I don't so know if I he's just, listening but. yeah so it was really so my real low point is when Donald Trump was asked as one does you know um, what are you reading at the moment and the, the answer was nothing I never read anything you know I mean beyond 140 characters clearly you know I think the problem with him doing intelligence briefing is not that it's repetitive or boring it's just the one paragraph is a bit too long for him you know, really <laughs> for, so that was just terrible I suppose it's a so of all the Trump moments that was the one no, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> of course not, John. No, he's leading us into the abyss of the post-truth world. The, you know, whatever one's predictions, prognosis about what he's going to do to the United States and the world. I suppose you could say this is a kind of a low point. If you think about the construction of his cabinet as a kind of Dada work of art, as a kind of <laughs> self auto-destructive cabinet people in charge yeah people in charge of departments they want to destroy that is a kind of an amusing absurdist construction but not amusing for all of us who are going to be on the end of it talking Um, of his cabinet you must have been happy when the cast of hamilton your cultural highlight um took the chance to kind of Actually, not lay it on thick to Mike Pence. No, who, um, he was, he was I, I thought it was weirdly. I thought Mike Pence actually, uh, who made a point, and I'm not a defender of Mike Pence. He has ghastly views, but uh, it's a bit much to be sanctimoniously harangued. I thought the the musical can speak for itself, and then he said I wasn't offended at all. It was again Trump, you know, who said an outraged. Yeah, he musical can be a safe place. Yeah. He no, said it, it was isn't. very Theater rude. Is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very rude, bad, sad. Yeah, he said the cast had it. harassed. Pence said been yeah. very rude. He demanded an apology. Right, but to, to, just without without beating it over the head completely, um, you know, time when it's short attention span is a kind of curse of the time, and when you really want to get to try and make reading a good idea, you know, and I, all presidents before, I mean, including Reagan. Um, have their own kind of reading habits, and, and actually. Um, George and Laura Bush started the book festival on the mall, which has actually been discontinued in Washington. So to say, well, I don't who has time to read anything at all. That was a kind of profoundly abysmal, dreadful thing, actually. One thinks of all those wonderful circulating libraries in the 18th century, where Franklin and Jefferson could plunder the the bookshelves for their historical and, and political inspiration. This was a deep low point for me, I think. So we've come a long way since then, I think. Yeah. Um, John, your highlight. Highlight. So I'm an Arsenal fan and Simon sitting opposite me is a Tottenham fan. Mm. <laughs> but I think we both, there is common ground here in that Leicester winning the Premier League was one of the great. the greatest sporting stories. Uh, yeah, you know, who could be against it? Really? Yeah, I know. So it's this kind of small <laughs> club who hadn't won a title in 132 years, yeah. full of kind of also ran journeyman players with a couple of really cheap kind of buys from the French League and they just like totally kind of reminded you why you're in love with sport and how good sport can be in the era of the kind of 
billionaire football owner petrochemicals it was just like such a you know absolutely remarkable story is there something quite british about this rooting for the underdog do you think i mean people just got on this story and kind of you know everyone loved it i didn't i don't know anything about football and i'm kind of you know moderately happy that leicester city have won did win the league i was particularly thrilled and also the manager was you know kind of cast off among all these great glittering italian yeah, claudio ranieri yeah. the friendliest chap in the world failure at chelsea i think wasn't it he yeah, was yeah. back and so and he was so unshowboaty wasn't he through the whole thing in as much state of incredulousness something really really unmodern about him as well today sportsmen aren't allowed to you know have a sip of beer they can't do anything yet whenever Leicester won he would buy them all pizzas and it's just like such a like you know I want that guy to be my my football manager (laughs) that was that was definitely the high point okay so we're going to end with my low point which I think was um well, it was supposed to be a kind of antidote to Simon to the post-truth world and mm. all of the depressing things that are going on. And I'm sure you've heard of this. It's the Danish art of hygge, <laughs> if I'm pronouncing that right. Hygge. <laughs> hygge is, I feel, I mean, it's it's one of the most annoying publishing phenomenons <laughs> of the year. And I think you walk into any branch of Waterstones, there is an entire table stacked Hug- full of about 10 Hugger different Hugger books. We are in a Hugger yeah. pandemonium. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, been used to sell everything from kind of fluffy socks to kind of vegan shepherd's pies. It's yeah. absolutely And candles, absurd. lots yeah. of scented candles. And yeah. it's all about coziness, isn't it? It's all about coziness. One I mean, of it's the all words things I that hate know. most in daily American speech, I refuse the word discourse, is... Um, comfortable I'm comfortable <laughs> with that actually are you comfortable <laughs> with that the best thing about the word comfortable which is a kind of American hooker is this joke where, where a little old Jewish man is knocked down by a lorry and uh, and he's carried carefully <laughs> to the curb you know this joke? no, no. I'm just and, uh, right, the and the Jewish person said, joke are you, are you comfortable and the little man sort of bleeding from every surface says I make a living <laughs> no, <actually. laughs> so I always hate this set. So we always have to be comfortable with everything or uncomfortable. So I'm not keen on cozy. As you get older, and I, I'm in my seventies, God, cozy is the last thing I want to be. <laughs> the moment anyone buys me a pair of slippers, I'm going to commit suicide. Oh God! You know, okay, well so we'll remember I, that. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want Hugo. So I, I no, sympathise. I well, I in my twenties also don't want Hugo. So yeah. I, Simon, I'm with you on that. Eddie Heathcote, who's our design and architecture critic, has published a very funny piece on this. And he says, The Danish art of coziness has been co-opted as the lifestyle trend to make us feel our disorganised, overworked, over-digital and under-curated lives are utterly inadequate. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, pretty much sums up Hugo he also, for me. Yeah, he also yeah. calls it pseudo-wisdom, which is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like that woman who sold a gazillion copies about tidying up. As well. Mary Kondo, I, Mary Kondo. Yeah. Lot, you, lots you of were, books this year about clutteredness, messy, tidying up. I'm so... Another, another, another audio. My father used to say, "Never trust a man with a tidy desk." Yes, Simon, I've seen like, your desk. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are trustworthy. <laughs> I'm not actually sure many people in uh, FT Weekend have very tidy desks. So I, I, I know no one with a tidy desk. Yeah. <laughs> God for that. <laughs> yeah. So if the cast of Hamilton the players of Leicester or Beyonce. If you happen to be listening, then you're welcome on the pod any time. <laughs> so thank you, Simon, for joining us. Pleasure. Hope you ask me again.
Now it's time to hear from two interviewees, Sarut Paka and Itzamar Srulovic, the Israeli husband and wife duo behind Honey & Co, who also just opened a new restaurant, Honey & Smoke. Both of them are in Fitzrovia. They also write a fortnightly recipe column in FT Weekend magazine. Yeah, Honey & Co is one of my favourite restaurants in London. It's tiny. So good. It's so good. And it's almost impossible to get a table there unless you're super organised and you book ahead. Yeah, you can, they do have Orkins, but you're leaving it to risk. Have you been to um, Have you been to Honey and Smoke yet? I haven't been to Honey and Smoke yet, no. Nor me, but Weekend Magazine had their Christmas party there. I know, which <laughs> we were not invited <laughs> Made to, me jealous. sadly. Um, yeah, yeah, so how do you describe the food? It's kind of... It's kind of Middle Eastern, amazing flavours. I think it's kind of similar to Ottolenghi, but it's a bit sort of less fussy, I would say. Yeah, like they were deliberately very much against kind of fine dining and really, I think there was one interview I read with them where they're really against like really complicated gastronomic food. Yeah. So it's um, super warming. It's kind of how mum would make it. Oh, I wish we had some now. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the interview with them did make me feel quite hungry, actually. They talk about food in a lovely way. So here they are in the studio. When we opened Honey and & Co and we started doing this food and some Israelis started coming or we would get people from, from Kuwait or from uh, Amman or friends of ours would just come over and see what we're doing. We were worried about what they would say because first of all, the portions are smaller. They're smaller than what you would get in the Middle East because they're meant to suit a Londoner and Londoners eat less. We'd be quite nervous about serving them and it's a really nice feeling to kind of win... Win, win them, them over, over and win, win that seal of approval and to get them to come back again and again is is a good feeling it it makes you think that maybe there is something to it and i think some of the, some of the aspects of, of of modern life everywhere is that people are losing some of these traditions of cooking they don't have the time or you know a lot of it is labor intensive and sadly we've had to lose some of the things that are very labor intensive because it's so busy Definitely one of my all-time favorites that we serve in Honey and Co. I don't know why we take it off the menu. I think it should always be on the menu. But always, you know, I turn my head and it's gone. Is Gundi is a type of uh, chicken dumplings that are very particular to the Jewish Iranian community that are made with with just chicken and chickpea flour and lots of seasoning that are particular for that. So cumin, cardamom we put into it, and turmeric, very, you know, bold flavours. And then they're cooked in a chicken broth that, again, is very delicately seasoned. And the dumpling themselves are so kind of soft and comforting. You get the But this is like proper workman's food. Like in in Israel, when you would go to like a small corner shop that sells this, you would get like one massive dumpling. It's like the size of a, I don't know, it's... It's like a, you know, small grapefruit, maybe. Yeah, and you eat that, just one dumpling, but because it's so soft and, and comforting, it's kind of what you have and you chew on herbs as you as you eat it, fresh herbs. It is a good it's dish. It's gorgeous, yeah. You what's, do get angry every that? time we take it off. I don't you? understand why. And the customers love it. Like you can't have the same it. thing, it becomes boring. We've met in uh, in the kitchen, obviously. There's not a lot of other places chefs can meet. 
it wasn't the best first impressions i don't think i think i came from a very military kind of michelin star kitchen and i thought he was a bit of a slob and how he worked and how he was late for work um i thought you know this one's a little bit uptight a little bit is very <laughs> very very highly strung yeah but uh she would make us little chocolates and little cakes for the chefs and i like that about it <laughs> so so the feeding part was yeah. the, probably the thing that uh, away to a man's yeah, heart is for a stomach yeah. it took us a while to kind of find a liking for each other up in uh, in Jerusalem which was you know the, the the time you know was the 90s it was a very optimistic place and it just felt like the center of the world and you know kind of where east and west just cohabit so peacefully or you know going to be peacefully because that was the Oslo process and things were looking like everything's going to be just fine and everyone came to Jerusalem it had a really kind of cosmopolitan feel that kind of backfired <laughs> it did it does it now it feels very segregated but back you know when i was growing up it felt like a very open city a very um welcoming city and i i now realize that that was you know a very you know unusual part in the history of this town well i grew up in a very different way because i grew up in a small kind of village in a small community but really it was just like a street to be honest um and i grew up in uh, kind of a row of a few houses that were all kind of uh people that had come to israel as immigrants so english speaking um we grew up in a bit of a bubble in that aspect for me one of the most important parts of childhood i was always kind of a fat kid <laughs> and it was always like my uh my passion and i started cooking very very young and I loved food, loved everything to do with it and I remember like very basic things like helping my mum mince meat or um pick chicken off the bones when we were making chicken pie and things like that which um I always enjoyed doing and then for us a big part was going out to to the Arab villages in the Galilee and that area uh eating that food. I think generally in Israel it's such a It's such a food-centric society. Everything happens around a, a dining table or a kitchen. Everybody cooks more or less, and everybody is very kind of particular. About and every holiday food. has a special food. Like there are things you will make for special holidays, and you wait a whole year because you'll you won't have donuts if it's not Hanukkah. Or you won't have uh, you know hamantaschen if it's not um, our Halloween. I think London's incredible. I was because uh, you know you you do where you where you grow up. You do think, all right, this is you know growing up in Jerusalem and then Tel Aviv. We said, all right, this is a town or this is a you know kind of a world center. But London is just incredible. The amount, the just the amount of people and the variety and the the amount of money that there is and things to do. I mean, we came on our holiday. It was kind of like. A pre-honeymoon? Yeah, when we first came here together. And we stayed 
kind of in in a like just a normal hotel somewhere on the borders of Shepherd's Bush and and Holland Park, and we were walking around, and just the the difference and the diversity and and seeing all the you know from an Indian restaurant to like a Chinese a crazy Chinese buffet or you know like a I don't even remember what this shop is called. It's like a little corner grocer shop that stocked all these like sliced meats and things like that, and all these. crazy biscuits because English people are crazy about biscuits you know I completely fell in love in London and I still am I think it's the most incredible town it is it hasn't become boring like how long have we been here now 12 12 13 years yeah it's in, been very good to us yeah it's been one. very good to us as well <laughs> you know We just opened a new place <laughs> um, two months ago, um, and it's, it's finally two months. it is just two months. I know it feels like a millennia. Yeah. Uh, this is finally this kebab shop that was the original plan, and we wanted to keep it very true to form. So it's not about the the decoration of the place. It's not about that. It's about the kind of nice dining room that you sit and you just want to eat the food and you want to eat more of it. I think the the food cooked on charcoal is. However way you turn it, it's the tastiest food. Even before you eat, just the smell of, you know, coming from a grill, it just gets you working, it just gets you going. When you walk down the street and you smell kind of... A waft oh, of wood. Or someone's grilling something, or, you know, there's something roasting somewhere, and you smell that, that the charcoal, and you smell the, the wood burn. I think it's something very primal and human that you say, I want to go there. You know, this is what I want. The things that are exciting about London is their acceptance of, of different. And I think when we started to look for premises, there's a lot of chains around. What's been amazing since, or in the, in the last five, six years, is the amount of these little independent places opening. People that are just doing their food or gone to research a whole aspect of food and then doing it. And, and within that, some really excellent Middle Eastern places. I mean... Um, Paloma and, and then the Barbary, which we haven't had a chance to go to yet, but we will. And uh, obviously, you know, Otolenghi and Nopi and everything to do with that, which kind of started the whole aspect of, of people going to that food. I like to see it kind of seeping into, you know, that you see, you know, food writers and recipe writers are kind of, you know, exploring yeah. Middle Eastern flavors a little bit more or... You know, you'd say Nigel will suddenly, you'll see a little bit more cumin or things like that. Or he'll roast a whole cauliflower yeah. or, so, you know, like things that you think, oh, it's it's becoming... It's, go- it's going, you know, into the heart of the nation, you know, in a way like, maybe like Italian food, maybe 15 years ago was not, was still very exotic. And now you can get, you know, aged balsamic everywhere. You can read Honey & Co's recipes in the FT Weekend magazine and try them out over Christmas. Or better still, have them cook for you and go to one of their restaurants. Honey & Co and Honey & Smoke are both in central London. That does sound better. 
Next week, we have a specially commissioned short story from the book of shortlisted author of All That Man Is, David Saloy. The title of his short story is Pig Killing Day. So happy Christmas, everyone. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Mario brown and John Sunya. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at GriseldaMB and at John Sunya. You can email us at everythingelse at ft.com or you can leave a review on iTunes. You can subscribe to Everything Else in all the usual places, including iTunes, as well as at ft.com slash everythingelse.